This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's the primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and joining me today we have a blast from the past, uh, someone that I hope all our listeners will be excited to see return to our airwaves or our podcasting waves after a lengthy gap, someone that is is almost uh, a treat for the listeners I think themselves. It's Tony Black. Hi Tony, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Duncan. You've really bigged me up there. I don't know if I'm going to match up to this. Up. <laughs> <laughs> it's very nice, though. That is very nice. Well, it's always always nice to you know hark back to our past to kind of uh, reward the the long term listeners who've been following this show, you know, right since the beginning. Uh, and it seemed appropriate because the subject that we're talking about uh, in this episode is fan service. It's this idea of the things that creators and we're of course talking about Star Trek, but we can discuss some other shows and even some film that are kind of out there at the moment doing making similar decisions maybe but the kind of decisions that creators seem to make that seem very much geared towards pleasing a certain uh long-standing uh section of the viewers i suppose we might say and really what the kind of parameters of of that phenomenon are and I guess to what extent it's it's something that we're comfortable with, whether it's a good thing, whether it's creatively uh, slightly limiting. Um, I mean, I know you have some quite strong feelings about uh, some of these issues. This this episode kind of came out of a discussion we had on Twitter uh, just after the end of season two of Discovery. Um, and Tony had written a piece um, basically expressing, I think it's fair to say, some of your quite strong reservations about that particular season of Star Trek, which I have to say I, I sort of largely agreed with. I think I enjoyed season two of Discovery a lot more than you did, maybe. But the things that you picked out that you had a real problem with were things that have been kind of bothering me as well. And one of the things that's kind of really key to all that, I suppose, is this question of like, you know, and it's maybe it's inherent in the idea of doing a prequel series, but really it's this idea of are decisions being made for kind of genuine creative reasons or is there, are there other sort of influences at work? And this idea of kind of fan service of like, oh, we'll do this, we'll sort of throw this one for the fans. We'll do this and it will please the audience. Constantly thinking about sort of pleasing, uh, not, not necessarily even the whole audience, but a certain section of the audience. To me, I think that is a slightly problematic way to go about uh, trying to create a new story. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, this, as you say, this this came out of the back of a conversation off Discovery season two, and I would preface this by 
pointing anyone to my recent appearance on Standard Orbit, which I with, with Zach Moore, which goes into detail about why I termed season two of Discovery in some of my writing on my um, site, Cultural Conversation, as the original series season zero point five. That was, and then Zach so named the podcast after that, and we had a really good discussion about it, um, which, as I say, has just come out on on Trek FM. Uh, as we record, I don't know how far into the future this is going to be airing, but it's there. So my, a lot of my thoughts on this, I won't rehash too de- too much in depth here be, in, for want of, of belaboring this point. So if you really want to know more detail about that, go, go and listen to TOS um, season 0.5 on Standard Orbit. But what I talk about really on there is, certainly in relation to Star Trek, is the idea that Fan service in terms of the franchise right now is very much uh, in line with a lot of different major IPs and, and, and franchises in that it's, it's brewed up heavily with a lot of nostalgia. And Discovery was sort of built on that. You know, Discovery is a prequel series set in the original series era. And my issue with it, season two anyway, was that it didn't feel like a prequel series as opposed to a prequel series for the original series. And it became too much about characters who aren't the Discovery crew and too much about fans being able to see Spock when he's young or, oh, there's Captain Pike. Oh, wow, it's number one. You know, oh, the Enterprise, the original Enterprise, which is all wonderful in its own way, you know, and I'd be lying if I said I I didn't feel a bit of an excitement when these things were announced or when, you know, you saw the Enterprise for the first time. But... Very quickly, you realise in that season that it isn't necessarily working to the show's best interest. And my concern with fan service, and I've written about this a fair bit, is that the nostalgic element only ever gets you so far with creativity. You know, it, it very easily slips into repetitiveness. It can lead to, unless you're very, very careful with how you do it, it can lead to fatigue and I really felt fatigue in season two of Discovery. I felt it in the storytelling. I felt it in the the plotting. I felt it in the writing. You know, and for for the second season of a new show, which is attempting to be something for a new you know era of television, it really worried me because the edge and the uh, the the, di- the the sort of unusual dynamism that was in the first series of Discovery, which is flawed. But it's a bit of a rough diamond. It's it's trying to chart new new directions and push the franchise a bit. That's all gone in season two. And my, my worry is that if you keep going down that kind of road, then you end up with something that in 50 years, and this is something I make the point of in the other podcast, you, might, you, you will end up in something in 50 years that people won't be looking back on like they look back on the original series now. You know, you won't have that nostalgia in some respects because we, we we're eat, it's like we're eating our own tail. So fan service for me is 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 a is a dangerous is dangerous waters and it's happening not just in Star Trek but in lots of other different major major franchises right now. Well and we've seen recently I mean the the kind of darker side of that is these fan petitions. And obviously this is not to say that fans should not be kind of invested in the in the properties that they're interested in. I mean Star Trek was saved originally by fans essentially by a fan petition, but that was a fan petition saying we want more Star Trek. And in fact the you know this season 3 of the original series that they got was maybe not quite uh you know many people would would say is is well, I think probably everyone would say is the least successful season of the original series. So in that sense what they got maybe wasn't quite what 
what they've been asking for. But it was at least a positive uh, gesture in that instance. The fans were saying, we love this show. We want more of it. You know, we don't want this show to die. And, you know, really made history and certainly, you know, put us in this position where we can be discussing the merits or demerits of, of season two of Discovery. But these days we're seeing increasingly whenever something comes out that the fans of a particular property aren't happy about, there's immediately a petition. I mean, Game of Thrones, we've just had, you know, gathering vast numbers of signatures saying, basically, we're not happy with how this all worked out. We want you to go away and do it again. Um, I mean, if if that was an option for Star Trek, I think there were quite a few episodes, I'd certainly be signing the These Are The Voyages. Uh, you know, talking about fan service, that was supposedly a, a valentine to the fans, which in the end turned out to be more like a kind of card from a stalker that nobody wanted, really. <laughs> so that there is that potential to... Uh, you know, really uh, get your fan service wrong. And I suppose that's part of it. I mean, you and I are both long-term fans of Star Trek. There are, I mean, we'll talk about maybe examples that do work uh, for us better. I mean, for me, something like Trials and Tribulations is a wonderful episode. I love that episode. But I think for me, maybe my, my st- I, I, I still hold fan service episodes and fan service decisions to a high creative standard. I think, I don't think it just gives you a pass. I feel there's this sort of idea sometimes that maybe if you kind of, you, you know, you wave an Andorian at someone or you kind of, you, you know, you gesture towards the fans by saying, look, we know about this thing that we, you know, that we know that you love, uh, that somehow that's enough. And it's almost, it's almost like, you know, when, you know, sometimes really bad comedians make jokes that are, you can see why they're sort of technically a joke, but they're not actually funny because they've not gone the next step of thinking, how do I, how do I, genuinely make this work how do i make it land and for me sometimes there's a feeling that fan service can feel when it doesn't work it feels a bit cheap and i feel slightly patronized by it i think that's the thing is it feels like it's sort of saying here look look this is this thing you love you know uh love it Uh, and my reaction is a bit like well no come on you know you know there's a reason why i love this thing and it's you know it's a bit more um you've got to try a little bit harder than that somehow yeah yeah i i i there there was a very funny tweet i saw um in the wake of game of thrones the finale which was uh the final just before the game of thrones finale i should say which was uh, a tweet somebody had said the final episode of game of thrones will be Riker and troy on the holodeck explaining the history of westeros which, <laughs> which i thought was great um yeah. but it's just just to go back to that very briefly because it's an interesting parallel to sort of make in that I, I'm I'm a really big fan of that show, and obviously anyone who listens to this, even if you're not a fan of Game of Thrones or you've never watched it, you will have more than likely heard about how it's the ending has really polarised people, you know. And that was always going to happen. This is the the ending of the biggest show this of the of this decade at least is possibly the biggest TV show in the history of television, in many ways. So it was it was always going to polarise. It was always going to happen. But what what you found is that you have a lot of fans who are very very frustrated that the the storyline has gone in a direction they, they didn't anticipate. Now, I consider myself one of these big fans, but I've tried to be... I've tried, where possible, to have some sort of measured distance about what I'm watching in that when I'm watching these last few episodes, I can see that there are certain elements that don't play out as you might expect. And the key thing with Game of Thrones is that it's always been a show where, for many seasons, partly because it's based on a book series, but partly because of the way the story is told, you kind of always have had an idea that it's going to get to a certain point with a certain group of people for a certain reason. And that, that it's, it's a show built on expectation. It's not like something like Lost or Westworld, where or even Discovery Season 2, where you don't quite know where the mystery is going. You know, Game of Thrones is very much that 
you know where it's ultimately supposed to get to. And then when it gets there recently, it didn't quite do what you thought it would do. And I think you found a lot of fans who are really invested in that show. And I consider myself one of them in a way many people are invested in Discovery already, which is fantastic. But I think a lot of fans are at a point where they expect a TV show or a movie or a franchise to give them what they want and to give them the the conclusion they want or the character beats they want or the very specific vision of what they have in their head as opposed to as opposed to how they think something should end. And I think a big concern with with fan service in that respect is that it leads to a lot of frustration when people aren't quite given what what they get what they what they get and and I think it's it's there's a difference between servicing fans in that respect and the expectation of what you should get as opposed to what are effectively gimmick gimmick episodes of television the kind of things you've been talking about these are the voyages in star trek you know reference trials and tribulations these are episodes which are designed to serve as almost a, a love letter be it successful or not to the past to different characters to certain situations i think there's a big difference for in terms of fans and what they get out of that and what they should expect from that kind of television as opposed to how fans might feel that they are not being properly serviced with the ending of a particular story or something that they've invested heavily in and you know maybe maybe this is maybe this is my problem with discovery season two maybe i wanted something out of that season that is different from what they gave us. And that, maybe that's one of the reasons I'm one of the most vocal, um, you know, uh, voices of, with misgivings about this. Maybe uh, maybe I put too much stock in it being something else. So, you know, you, ha- you have to... You should to- start a petition, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> a petition against myself. Get them to rewrite it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rewrite the last season. Or a petition to yeah. stop me podcasting again about it, maybe. Yeah. Um, well, but- I mean, although the ironic thing is, in some ways, you could say... I, 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 it's not the result of a petition, obviously, but like this whole decision to send Discovery 950 years in the future is almost, a, a, I mean, as much as in some ways that escapes all of this stuff and it means that they can't really uh, lean so heavily on, on the kind of prequel thing and on the kind of TOS thing and everything, it is also in its own way a kind of course correction based partly on people like us criticising the show. Do you, do you know what I mean? So many of the creative decisions that came out of that season, I think this is you know, probably one of the reasons that people like you and to a lesser extent me had problems with it feel like they're course correcting, you know, even things like, and I know maybe this isn't the case. We don't really know with Culber, did they really have it all worked out how it was all going to go? But it does sort of feel maybe even if that arc was planned in its entirety from the get go, the way that it kind of played out and the kind of, and certainly the way that the show talked about it the fact that they had to go online immediately and say oh he's coming back the fact they had to kind of hedge all of this stuff was very much like an engagement with the audience which is is almost coming out of a kind of place of fear of the audience getting angry about something whereas i mean i don't i don't watch game of thrones but obviously i've been following because it's kind of inescapable the sort of discussion around it it seems like i mean and i think this is is quite a brave decision the writers of game of thrones seem to have a kind of healthy contempt for their audience's expectations and basically just say, look, we're do- this is what we're doing, you know, and, you know, like it or suck it up or, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, or leave basically, it kind yeah. of thing. And I think that in some ways I, I 
I had issues with season one of, of Discovery. I enjoyed it more on a binge watch and I haven't gone back and rewatched season two and I may enjoy that more on a binge watch as well. But I think I, I can certainly see what you mean that season one felt like a weird, quirky, strange thing that's its own thing. And I think Disco still has a lot of that. But the things that I wasn't so wild about were the things where it felt, I suppose it's kind of pandering in a way. And I don't know about you. I mean, when we got to the end of season one and that final shot of the last episode, which I have to say was spoiled for me by someone on Twitter. So I didn't get the experience that I was supposed to have of being like, you know, uh, caught off guard by it. But I think even if I hadn't been expecting it, you see, my reaction watching that was not one of, um, oh, wow, how exciting. It's the Enterprise. I love Star Trek. I love to see the Enterprise. You know, I've seen the Enterprise. I, I, I feel like that's not why I was watching. I wasn't watching Discovery, hoping the Enterprise would turn up. And it's a bit like, hopefully no one was watching Next Gen waiting for, you know, McCoy or Spock or Scotty to turn up. You know, that's not to say that those things didn't work when those things happened, but hopefully that's not why you're watching it. And I suppose when I watched that last episode of season one of Discovery, that, that last minute or whatever it is, my feeling was more anxiety. It was more sort of dread. It was more like, oh gosh, you know, where, where is this going? Because, because I felt that they would screw it up. And I don't actually think they did screw it up. I mean, I think aside from, you know, I have reservations as I say about season two, but I don't think they screwed up bringing in the enterprise necessarily. I still don't think it was necessarily the right decision for the show. But to be honest, my, thought at the end of that first season was, well, it's probably just a tease. We'll probably see them for five minutes. They'll go on their way and that'll be it. And Disco will get back to being Disco. And it's kind of just, uh, you know, a bit like one of those, you know, often you, you get with old shows, the cliffhanger that doesn't really go anywhere. Or to be honest, even the best of both worlds, the cliffhanger, you, you know, Mr. War fire. Oh, it doesn't work. It's that kind of, you know, it's a classic thing of, okay, you're going to tease something and really build up expectations and then just move on extremely quickly and kind of almost forget that happened. But then of course, what we got was very different. I mean, I'm curious when you watched that last episode of season one and you saw that, that final minute or two, what were your feelings about going into season two? What were you, you know, because this was before we heard, oh, Captain Pike's going to be captaining Discovery, before we heard, oh, they've cast number one, they cast Spock even. Um, but just from that, that tease, because that was a, that was the biggest piece of fan service in season one, I suppose, of, of Discovery, uh, which has plenty of, of kind of little nuggets and Easter eggs and, and so on in there. But that was the kind of real, and, and again, it, what it felt like to me was that was, that was kind of someone saying, look at this massive bunch of flowers we've got you. Isn't it beautiful? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And I was a bit like, well, yeah, it is. <laughs> but, you know, is that, but is that what I thought was going on here? You know? I, I, I think, well, I mean, the thing is, I mean, if, if you look at season one, the very, the very construction of Discovery in itself is kind of fan service. The whole thing. You know, you, you might say, oh, well, you know, we've had a prequel series before, which was enterprise and there were definitely aspects of enterprise we may all talk about this later but there are aspects of enterprise that are definitely fan service later you know but the concept of enterprise was more about establishing a prequel you know setting to the whole of the 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 star trek journey it was it was a different kind of prequel this is a prequel designed purely to tap into the kind of nostalgia that jj abrams revived with the movies you know he went back with those movies as a way, you know, for, and Star Trek was dead on television. Nobody, you know, nobody was watching it. It was a new era. He he revived interest in Star Trek at, in the cinematic level by by bringing back Kurt, by bringing back Spark, by re, you know doing a replay of some of these old you know classic movie plot lines, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
and so when Brian Fuller gets the, the green light, Alex Kurtzman get the green light to make a Star Trek show, they make something that is, and, there, and there were a lot of, obviously there were a lot of different plans with Discovery originally, how it was supposed to be set in different eras of the Star Trek universe, which I think is a massive missed opportunity, quite honestly, but that's a separate thing. They kind of are doing that now with the expanded CD, CB, um, BS universe, which is fine. But the very concept of Discovery is a prequel series set in an era in which, let's face it, when you first heard that Discovery was set 10 years before the original series, even before finding out that Burnham was going to be a daughter of Sarek, did anyone not think, oh, well, we're going to see Kirk, or we're going to see Spock, or we're going to see Scotty, or somebody, or something to do with that original? Why set it there unless you were going to make it in some way tie into the original series? You were going to tie and tap into the nostalgic aspect of that show, of that era. You know, yes, they updated it visually, aesthetically, but, you know, there, it's still, that first season, much as it is trying new things and it's doing some really, some things that do work and don't work, like the Spore Drive, which is a terrible idea, but that doesn't exist now. Shh, um, we're not allowed to talk about that. But um, it's, you know, it's it's trying new things. But the point is that the, the very concept in itself, even before you get to season two, is fan service. But what season one tried to do within that was tell some stories which did try and, and you know, do different things. So when you get the Enterprise at the end, I'll be, I, I, I won't lie, Duncan, I, I, was, I was quite excited, but I think it was more a case of, ooh, okay. And then immediately in my head I went, ooh, that probably means we might see Pike. And I did, you know, and admittedly at first I was, I was a little bit excited by it. And I was like, oh, this is cool. This is interesting. However, you know, I didn't expect, quite honestly, an entire season built around that. And I think that's, that's where... You know, if you'd had the first two, I think Zach and I said this on Standard Orbit, but if, you know, if you had two episodes at the start of the season that maybe had the Enterprise crew and dealt with some of that, and then they go off on their own separate ways, fine. Okay, fine. You know, that's that's a different kind of thing. But I think the there there is, I can totally see where you're coming from in terms of an element of dread about it, because that that's the point where Discovery really stops becoming, it stops being Discovery. You know, and it, it does start from that point on being the original series with a little bit of discovery in it. And I, and I, and I think, and it's, it's really surprised me, or maybe I'm naive and maybe it, this shouldn't surprise me at all, but it has really surprised me how many, how, how many fans don't have a problem with that. How many fans actually are perfectly happy for, you know, Pike, Spark, number one to, you know, elbow their way in past all the new characters that we'd, we'd created and, essentially just make it about them you know and, and it really surprises me because it's it's one of those things where you know imagine if that had have happened in the next generation in season two that suddenly you'd had you know an older spot turn up and you'd had scotty come through his dyson sphere or whatever and then old mccoy's rattling around and they take over and they're basically the front they come to hijack the enterprise they come to again. hijack the enterprise yeah and they and <laughs> yeah. and, and, and you know spot goes yeah. yeah spot goes we're going to we're going to recover a captain crook from the nexus or whatever you know and, and imagine that imagine if it becomes that i mean you'd be watching it thinking what is going on you know, what about the new characters? What about Riker? What about Troy? What about, you know, and if that had happened, those characters, the characters that we do love from the next generation, Data, Picard, you know, all these people, they would never have had a chance to become these classic immortalized characters in the Star Trek universe that they were. And you think, well, you know, it's not to say that the damage has been irreparably done with Discovery because season three might actually repair a lot of this damage. But you, you had a season where the main characters on, on a TV show have had to essentially, you know, fight their way for screen time. 
And I, I, I think, I think that's fundamentally a flawed idea. And, it, and it's a cynical one because I don't, and I, again, I'm, I'm trying not to go over too heavily on what I said on Standard Orbit, but ultimately I think it's a cynical move to try and get fans in, new and old fans, on the basis of Spock, of Pike, of the Enterprise. And I, I'm very, I'm, I've got a very cynical raised eyebrow about the, 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 the decision making behind that for season two. Um, because I think I think they got to the end of season one of Discovery, and I think they were worried that they were going to start hemorrhaging fans because it wasn't what they considered was quote unquote Star Trek. And I think if we get to a point where fans are starting to 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 want exactly the same thing over and over again, we're in trouble. Definitely. And I mean, I would say for what it's worth. I loved Anson Mount. I thought he was great. I understand why people thought he's very charming. Very, I mean, quite different to Jeffrey Hunter in a way, but you know, fair enough. I, I love that character. I really enjoyed Pike as the captain. Uh, I didn't have a problem with, um, Ethan Peck and his Spock. I thought that was fine. But, uh, but things like, I suppose for me, it was the, it was the, I don't know how many episodes. It was probably like six or seven. It was like a good third of the season, I'd say, wasn't it? Where they were searching this, this search for Spock, basically. And Spock was the kind of MacGuffin, uh, of the series. And it's this kind of building up this kind of mystery around it. And also like something like Pike. Okay. Fine. Pike. Interesting character. Good captain. They found some ways to kind of add some nuance to his character. This idea that he maybe has this, uh, sort of semi-religious background. That's an interesting sort of take on the character given what we saw in the cage uh they, they've given him a little bit of depth what i felt is the problem with pike though of course is he is a character where you know where he's going this is always the problem with the prequel so there's a kind of um he's dramatically a dead character in a sense in that he's you know almost literally a dead character because we know his end point i know he's not actually dead but um then the kind of attempts to slot into that I don't know, like this whole thing about him choosing to take the crystal, for me, that didn't work. I can see some people loved that. They thought that made him more heroic. They thought that made his story more tragic or whatever. For me, it just felt like a way of trying to introduce a kind of dramatic beat into a story that is essentially dead because we already know the outcome of it, if you know what I mean, by by adding something surprising. On the other hand, you know, I loved Lethe and you could say the same is sort of true about that in that it's kind of introducing a, a moment within the story that explains what we know happens later. For me, that worked much more successfully. That, that, that was a much more kind of nuanced, complex, uh, take on it. Whereas the stuff in season two of Discovery, you know, going back to Talos four, it not, I, I didn't hate any of these episodes in their own right necessarily, but I didn't feel that they added very much. And I, and I absolutely think you're right that there's an element of kind of hijacking the, the story that the show is is sort of supposedly about with that stuff because that became such a sort of uh, a big part of that season in a way and it's also maybe a difference i mean you were talking about like these special shows these anniversary shows or whatever i mean yeah we had you know for the 30th anniversary uh ds9 and voyager both did a a sort of nostalgia fest show one way or another i mean I think most people would agree one of those shows did it more successfully than the other. Not to say that flashback is a terrible episode, but, um, I think it shows. And when you, when you were talking about this idea of, you, you know, the, the Valentine to the fans or whatever it is, I think that who is writing that, um, that love letter, whatever the metaphor is, makes a big difference. And I think it's not a surprise that the DS9 writers writing a love letter to the original series, uh, hit all the right kind of emotional beats as well as the kind of comedic beats. And Brandon Braga, who we know, you know, admitted he never watched the original series 
uh, ends up doing it for Voyager. And it, you, you know, it, okay, it's fine, but it doesn't have that kind of, um, meaning to it. Do you know what I mean? And I think that maybe that's, and that's the, and then Brandon Braga again has to write this, uh, you, you know, these are the Voyagers sort of trying to do the same thing in a weird way. I mean, in a different way, but, but sort of tr- trying to hit one of these kind of, um, sort of special, fan service episodes and again it falls completely flat and admittedly that was not about the original series that was kind of about next gen and he was around for next gen and so he probably did have nostalgic feelings himself about next gen but again that kind of i guess what happened in that instance is what i think is always the danger of these stories is that the the fan service element sells short what's what else is actually going on sort of so so in the case of enterprise what that episode did and this was why you know that you can see scott bacula talking about it on the blu-rays and scott bacula seemingly is like the nicest guy you could imagine and he basically said in this instance he was the one picking up the phone and saying you know what the f is this this is you know he was angry about it justifiably because i think that maybe that episode came out of you you know brandon braga and rick berman has had a bad experience uh with enterprise i think you know they'd kind of been pushed out on the writing front you'd had this fourth season that manny koto organized which was much more successful in many ways i mean personally i my favorite season of enterprise is the third one but most fans i think love the fourth one which which does do all the kind of fan service in various different ways some of them more successful than others i would say um and then they came back to write this final episode which i think they'd kind of basically written beforehand anyway but what it does is it kind of almost underestimates the extent to which there were fans of Enterprise. <laughs> you know, not everyone hated that show. And I suppose it's that kind of tendency of, of the course correction or the kind of feeling this anxiety, the fans don't like something, so we'd better change it. And it's almost like by saying, well, what the fans really liked was Next Gen. That was, that was you know, Brandon Braga's probably sitting there thinking, I remember once upon a time, I worked on a Star Trek show that everyone loved. Uh, and since then, you know, he'd been working on Voyager, which people had kind of mixed feelings about. He did Enterprise, which is a big show, which a lot of people had mixed feelings about. It must have felt like they could never quite get it right again. And therefore, the solution is to go back to the one that everyone loved. But it just totally sort of misses the point. That's why I sort of say it's like, it's like the stalker turning up. So it's like, it doesn't doesn't get what you want somehow. And obviously some of these things are subjective because some people, a lot of the things that you and I are saying that we don't really want, other people are saying, oh, I love it. I can't believe they went back to Telos 4. I can't believe, you know, I love what's going on with Captain Pike. I think his arc's so tragic and beautiful and all this stuff. You know, they they love all of that. It's it's because it's, plugging gaps i mean i've i wrote a piece on this i've i've i talked on the podcast i've written about the fact that season two of discovery is like season four of enterprise essentially fan fiction it's fan fiction that's been filmed it's fan fiction that's been given a budget and it's been allowed to to, you know the whole thing about pike which i I agree with you i think is really misjudged in terms of, of, of 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 that the whole thing with pike is that he was a, a, a fairly big character in the, you know, the historical sort of lexicon of Star Trek who nobody knew enough about, you know, and it was one of those things over the years, you've had tons of time fiction, tons of, you know, fan fiction, writing Pike's adventures, Pike's stories, you know, that, that mission of the enterprise, you know, the one, the, the crew of the cage. And it felt like when they realized that they were in that era, you know, that was one thing they were like, Oh, we've got to do that. We've got to fill that in. We've got to explain what all that is because 
That's what fan fiction does. It explains. It plugs gaps. It, it, it writes things. That's what season four of, of, of Enterprise was all about. You know, you had the guy who invented the transporter. You know, you had the history of the Vulcans. You had the, you know, the, the, the Surak and all that stuff. You know, you, you had you had Arik Sung and the eugenics and all the tie into Wrath of Khan. All of that was the kind of stuff you would see fan fiction writers writing. And they did it because Enterprise was on, would, was, you know, a, 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 like, in fact, like Discovery, a show which could never find itself. You know, and this is this is what I worry about with Discovery and that it's going to go a similar way. Enterprise never really figured out what it was. At the first the first two seasons it was trying to be next generation but set like 200 years previously. And it was just very rote and dull and everything like that. And then at the same time it had this massive sort of temporal cold war plot line which sort of jarred with all that. I agree with you season 3 is the most consistent because it does a 911 analogy you know all the way through it, it and we've talked about this on on the show before haven't we we talked you know in the in an earlier episode uh, and it's the most consistent season but then it lurches into this fan fiction when the ratings are starting to plummet everyone's they're starting to worry that it's not going to last seven seasons like the rest of them and by then it's too little too late you know and so that that's what these kind of stories do and i think that's that's the difference between what the the anniversary episodes that, that certainly did in the sense that they were a. They were tying into a, a you know an era of Star Trek and trying to look back thirty years on at you know what what this franchise has become. And Trials and Tribulations does that really well because it manages to to go back to the the, the crew and find a really inventive way and fun way of integrating the Deep Space Nine characters in. You know, and it, and it is it's very silly. You know, but it knows how silly it is. It has fun with the material. You know, it, it's 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 giving you lots of joy and. It, it, it certainly is never going to make that anything more than a fun little throwaway gimmick episode. You know, next week it's back onto it's back in the twenty fourth century. It's back onto the plot lines. You know, I think the week after it might be the Begotten or something like that, or, or you know, something that's very rooted in the in the stories and the mythology of Deep Space Nine. That's done and it's gone. Even flashback, which is less successful. Because, quite frankly, Braga's ideas about doing this are quite weird. You know, he just basically saw, oh, yeah, Tim Russ was in the undiscovered country. Let's let's make him Tuvok. Oh, let's find it. it was he really... was in the wrong film, though. Tim Russ was in Generations, wasn't he? Oh, yes, he was. But you're right. There might be, I mean, like unconsciously, maybe was, that's yeah. part of what was going on. And, of course, there was he also was this it, thing with Braga that Braga was the one... Not on his own, admittedly, but you know, Braga was the 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 guy who'd never watched the original series who got to kill Captain Kirk. You know, yeah, there's that yeah, kind of yeah. weird. I it's do strange, still wonder whether it? Generations is a kind of bridge. I mean, obviously, it's a bridge. You know, <laughs> there's several bridges uh, in that film. One of them, you know, a, a fatal bridge. But um, I, I don't know. I sort of wonder what the role of that is because I mean, we don't think of Generations as. Or I don't, I didn't sort of think of Generations as this kind of fan service thing. But, you know, one of the things I've been watching uh, a lot recently for a future episode of Primitive Culture is a lot of Doctor Who. And Doctor Who, they do all the, you know, the two Doctors, the five Doctors. They do all the stuff where you get all the, you get the, the Doctors together through various, you know, kind of timey-wimey means. Generations, of course, that was, that was the big gimmick. You know, two captains. We've got the two captains together. Um, and we're going to find a way of kind of, of, of making them work together. And we don't, I mean, that is the ultimate fan service on one level, but at the same time, it does, I don't know why it doesn't feel, and I'm not saying this is a good thing about that film or, or a bad thing or, or what, but I don't know. It, it literally hadn't occurred to me until now that, that that might be on the list of things to discuss. And I'm not quite sure why that is, but I do think one of the reservations that a lot of people have about that film may be partly to do with 
the fact that again it's it's Bran and Braga. They also Ron Moore, who I think was you know more of a original series fan. It's the kind of new Trek writers having to deal with the old Trek and the new Trek, and trying to sort of bridge those two things. And it's always tricky to work out how to do it. I suppose, however you do it, and, and it's cheesy. I mean, even like in DS Nine, which does it beautifully, it's cheesy and silly. But they kind of just acknowledge that it's cheesy and silly. There's an orb. It's magic. You know, whatever. And it's kind of all quite fun. It doesn't really matter that it's a ludicrous story. And it's even you know you've got um, at the end you know in that episode you've got the the Mulder and Scully characters kind of again a sort of other level of like uh, of kind of jokey. You, you know, I mean, we did meta textual well, looking kind of, at Easter eggs. Yeah. I mean, exactly that kind of meta kind of Easter egg thing. But I think the thing is, you can do the meta stuff, but you have to kind of recognise the meta stuff is fun. That's like the the sugar on top. Do you know what I mean? That's the kind of confection side of it. There's got to be something else going on as well. So even in Trials and Tribulations, there's a lot of humour. It's very funny. There's a lot of character comedy and everything. But it's got the kind of sweet moments. It's got even, you, you know, Cisco getting Kirk's autograph, whatever, which is a kind of meta moment, because obviously we know that, that we're thinking about like Star Trek fans getting William Shatner's autograph or whatever. But it has a kind of heart to it that I think is 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 genuine and is heartfelt. And it comes from that real kind of love. But But what I think about these kind of meta moments, which are almost like sort of breaking the fourth wall, in a way. And I don't, it's not that I think they can't work necessarily, but I think sometimes there's a, again, a sort of misjudgment around them. And one of the things in just going back to discovery that bothered me slightly, and this is a tiny, tiny thing, but at the end of that last episode, they made a big thing about Spock shaving his beard because he, he had this sort of moment where he's like stroking his beard and thinking, shall I shave my beard? Uh, as, as if Spock is sort of thinking, Shall I go and turn myself into what people think Spock is supposed to look like? And it just seemed like, and there's, it's this kind of, it's a beat. It's like a dramatic beat in the show. And I just feel like when you were talking about fan fiction, it really makes me think of that because that's, okay, Spock having a beard or not having a beard is something that is meaningful in the kind of meta universe around Star Trek. Do you know, do you know what I mean? To the fans, something like that is meaningful. Oh, Spock's got a beard. He looks different. You know, we, we can debate on Twitter whether he, having the beard works or not. Within the universe of Star Trek, Spock having a beard is not interesting or dramatic or it's, it's, you know, it's trivial. It's as trivial as anyone else having a beard is in real life and deciding to shave their beard. And by like making that a dramatic beat and putting the music under it and kind of having the stroking the chin and doing all that stuff. It's it to me. It's like it's confusing the two things, and I think one of my reservations about a lot of this stuff and a lot of this, and I do sort of wonder. You know, you were talking about J.J. Abrams. I mean, Alex Kurtzman, of course, is a big sort of figure in this. Why is it that to me, Iris Stephen Bear's idea of a love letter, like, moves me? <laughs> you know, I'd go on the date with Iris Stephen Bear if he was the one sending the card. If you know what I mean. Uh, Brandon Braga's seems slightly clumsy. Alex Kurtzman's or, or J.J.'s or whatever. I, Again, I sort of feel like to me is slightly missing something. And that whole thing with the beard is like, it's, it's a tiny thing, but it's a kind of a microcosm of something, I think, because it's almost like it confuses the one level of reality for the other. Do you know what I mean? And it's almost as if it's saying, OK, as fans, you're so wrapped up in this and you're so absorbed in it that you almost can't distinguish between what is actually part of the story and what is part of your kind of um meta story. And that's not to say that, that can't work. I mean, I think in Star Trek V... That line, uh, not in front of the Klingons. That's a similar moment insofar as that is a kind of acknowledgement of the existence of slash fiction and this kind of idea of, uh, this kind of 
something that exists outside of the kind of uh, reality of, you know, of the Federation and of Starfleet and of, of Star Trek in that sense. But it's a throwaway gag. It's a joke. It's not supposed to carry any kind of weight. And I think it's, I suppose it's just this, this question again and again of kind of, of hitting it right, of hitting that kind of balance. And it is a bit like a, a, a sort of sense of humor or something. And, and, and having the right kind of nuance to that. And I think it's, it's quite difficult. But if you want to connect with someone on that level, if you want to connect with a fan, you want to offer them something special and you want to kind of give them something like that. It has to come from a place of, of empathy, I suppose, between you and them. Do you know what I mean? Like you, you have to genuinely love the same things they love, or you have to kind of feel or appreciate the same things that they do. And I know, I mean, maybe I'm talking nonsense because obviously a lot of, you know, the people who love these things are big Star Trek fans and it worked for them and the things that don't work for you or me clearly do work for other people. But to me, it feels like they're sort of, like I said before, it can be a bit cheap. It can feel a bit like it's not very genuine. And what it makes me wonder, and I hesitate to say this because I don't want to feel, you know, have a lot of issues around gatekeeping and, and kind of people saying that people are fake fans or, or whatever. And I would never want to be the one uh, accusing someone of being a fake fan or saying, you know, your your approach to fandom is wrong or whatever it is. But I do worry in some ways that as much as I have reservations about Brandon Braga and, and some of the stuff that he wrote trying to kind of fill these gaps as we talked about. I appreciate the fact that Braga was honest in saying, I'm not an original series fan. I never really watched the original series. It's not my thing. Uh, I, I don't know about that. It doesn't mean anything to me. I feel like these days, no one would be allowed to say that. And I feel that there's a sort of expectation that even all the actors never, everyone has to pretend that they grew up loving Star Trek and it really means a lot to them. And, you know, I hope it did. And that's, that's lovely. And, you, you know, and a lot of them have, you know, Anthony Rapp, for example, has gone away and watched loads of Star Trek and clearly does really love it. And I think a lot of them do, but I just feel like there's a sort of 20 years ago, most people didn't grow up loving Star Trek. It, maybe that's changed and that's great. And everyone does, but. I sort of feel it's it, it's it's the flip side of that thing of like you know being a nerd becoming cool and and we had Barack Obama the president who you know who was a bit of a nerd and liked some of the sci-fi things and so on but it's almost like it's gone from it being acceptable to say that you loved something like that to feeling like that that it's almost not allowed to say that it passed you by or you weren't that interested in it or actually it doesn't mean that much to you or you don't understand you know someone like Patrick Stewart who would probably say to be honest I had no idea what was going on half the time <laughs> do you know what, <laughs> you know what I mean that kind of um or like Kate Mulgrew saying I, I didn't understand any of it you know all this science was just gibberish to me but you know I, I you know I, I read the scripts and I did my best with the character and I you know tried to get into it I feel like there's almost this expectation these days that everyone has to be a fan as well as part of the 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 creation of it and i i just i think that's slightly problematic for me and and so this idea that like it's fans speaking to fans well I, and I, I don't want to say that you know, they're not fans maybe they are fans maybe they love it and, and so on and, and some of them i think genuinely do but i feel that it worries me that i feel there's this expectation that everyone has to kind of claim that somehow and i i, I don't think it's honest I, th- I think i think a lot of it as well goes back down to the fact that you are the the line between fans and the creators and the actors of these things has really sort of disappeared now you know i mean i i i i mentioned it again on standard orbit about how i got into a little bit of a uh, heated brief exchange with wilson cruz on twitter because 
Um, I'd I'd made I'd replied to Brandon Nutella making a comment about whether Colby should have stayed dead as a character, and I said, "Yeah, he should." And then Wilson Cruz went, "Oh, that's not very nice." And then I had to explain to him, "It's not it's not a reflection on you as an actor or you as a character. It was just I think it was the wrong choice." But it's that whole thing of well, now you know. I mean, back in the day, could you even imagine when we were watching Voyager, DS Nine, Next Generation? Can you imagine actually having a conversation with? like Jonathan Frakes on, on, on Twitter about the episode that's just aired, you know, I mean, it, it, it was, it, it was beyond the realms of even thinking of a possibility, you know, it's, it, it, it really is. And, and, but now you can hop on, you can tweet Anthony Rapp and there's a good chance he might get back to you. And so I think, and that's, and that's not, that's not to say that's not a good thing because I think, like you say, I think I actually think the Discovery crew and the actors are lovely, you know, and we, we've seen them live. We've seen them on a stage, haven't we? We've asked them questions, you know, at DST and things like that. And they're genuinely lovely people and you really get the sense they love what they do. And that's, and that's, and they wonderful. work really hard and they do, they, they also do a really good job, I think. They do. Think they do a very great talented job. talented and very, you know, dedicated as well. They, they are. And they're, they're lovely. They're really, I really, really like them. I think they're one of the nicest collection of people involved in a in a in a uh, something like this I've I've ever come across they're great but it's it's fans these days really do have not all of them and I'm not generalizing I'm trying not to generalize here but there is there is an incre- and this is not just a star trek phenomenon this is everywhere this is game of thrones this is star wars this is james bond everything every single thing you could imagine fans have a sense of real entitlement about the, what they what they think they should be given, what they're expecting. And, you know, they feel like they have a right to voice this directly to the people. I mean, right now you're seeing, you know, these, you mentioned it earlier about the petitions to remake the entire eighth season of Game of Thrones. And it, and I think it was Sophie Turner who played Sansa in the show came out and said, that's just really disrespectful. You know, it's, it, we, we worked really hard for a year to create this and you're turning around and like a million of you are writing a petition going, oh, you must remake it. It wasn't what we wanted. It's like, well, when did when did we get to a point where what we are creatively given, for better or worse, we have a right to judge whether it exists or not? You know, when, when, did, when did we get there? Because that's not how art works. Ali, I, I may not like a lot of the choices that Alex Kurtzman and his, his group did in season two of Discovery, but I would never in a million years think of tweeting them to say your show stinks i hate it you're terrible you've done awful things how dare you it's one thing it's rude and the other the other thing is it's they are making what they wanted to make for better or worse i may not agree with the decisions they made but they made what they wanted to make for whatever reason and regardless of my feelings about the quality and equally as a fan i am more than within my rights to voice that i'm more than within my rights to write about it to podcast about it to, to talk about it and say this didn't work. This is why I think that. But equally, creators and writers and stars have more than the right to do what they think they should do, you know. And this this is why, you know, when you look at you look at things and there are some weird decisions. I mean, you know, they're, they're, these are the voyages it's hard to defend <laughs> on any level because it's just bizarre. It's just one of the most bizarre things you'll ever see. But, you know, they did what they thought was an interesting, innovative, unique, you know, ending to enterprise that catastrophically failed. 
you know, and I think you've got to respect on some level what they what they wanted to do, even if it didn't remotely work. And it is awful, you know. And and that's they that's followed the thing. through with their truly terrible idea. They yeah. did, <laughs> and, you know, and this <laughs> this is the thing. And I think I think to, on some level, you, you people should stop and remember that we're not entitled to anything. You know, we're not as fans. We're not this. This isn't about us getting what we want all the time. This is about us getting what you know what people who make these things who are in the position where they've got the the money or the the liberty or you know the expertise to make things even if it's things based on a franchise we've we've loved for 50 years that we obsessively follow that we want to see work that we want the details to line up you know even if it's that then we should respect it we should respect the effort we should respect what they want to try and do and i, I and i think and this is happening this you know it was particularly pervasive with the last jedi in star wars you know, with the terrible, terrible treatment of certain of the characters and some of the, you know, and sometimes some of the actors are complicit in it. You know, so they, they are so on some on some level. Sometimes they tweet things out or, you know, I mean, you have to look at the X-Files and how in the last season of that, Gillian Anderson was quite vocal or with a lot of shade on Twitter as to how that all ended, you know. So, you know, they're, they're, they can sometimes stir the pot a little bit. But ultimately, I think the boundary between fan and creator has grown worryingly thin. And I, I, I think that, you know, it's partly the, the social media revolution, you know, <laughs> that has created this. We didn't have the tools when in the 90s when, you know, or even when These Are The Voyages came out, there were probably a lot of strong letters, but this was pre-Facebook, this was pre-Twitter. People couldn't directly text, you know, message Brandon Braga and go, I hate you, you know. You, you might be able to email them, but it was different. It, what, it was in more of a condensed sort of, um, you know, st- you know, pathway. Whereas now it is quite a toxic vacuum and it, and it's led to a lot of partisanship. You've got haters and likers, or, you know, you've got, you've got a very clear dividing line in a lot of ways between the two to the point, like you say, people are afraid to voice a country opinion or people th- believe they've got to line up and back it. You know, they've got to be the one saying, Oh yeah, of course. I, of course I know that episode from, you know, 1992. <laughs> it's like, you don't, you probably don't. And it's okay if you don't, you know, so I think we, we've reached a we bit of a worrying expect, stage. Just because we're fans, we can't expect everyone to be fans the same way that we are. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of, this could almost be a whole other discussion, but you know, that famous Saturday Night Live sketch with William Shatner, the kind of get a life sketch, which was all very much predicated on the idea of, you know, do you remember in episode 27 when this happened? Uh, exactly those kind of st- questions, which you do still sometimes get at conventions. But I think hopefully most fans are a bit more aware in terms of kind of trying to to bridge that gap if they're going to interact with the creators or interact with the actors or, or whatever and recognise that, you know, yes, they might do the conventions every year or whatever, but the, you're asking them to talk about things that they maybe did 20 or 30 or, you know, 50 years ago. And you have to be kind of realistic about what you what you kind of expect people to remember or what you expect them to, to talk about. But one of the things that struck me from what you were just saying, um, and maybe we should just talk a little bit about what does this idea of service mean? One of the reasons I've always been slightly uncomfortable with the, the concept of fan service or the phrase fan service is to me, it sounds very sleazy. It always conjures to my mind some image, uh, of like dodgy massage parlors or something. It's the kind of, um, a rise in bordello. Yeah, exactly. It's something, it's something kind of, um, 
it's like something extra that is a little bit uh i don't know there's, there's <laughs> something sort of almost inappropriate about it and it reminds me very much of this phrase that Brandon Braga actually used to use when he was writing enterprise continuity pornographers and that's what he used to say i mean actually although you weren't you know he wasn't on twitter interacting with them they did get a lot of complaint letters they did get a lot of people uh, objecting to various things they were doing and he used to say that he felt the continuity pornographers were on his back basically and all they wanted was exactly what you're saying sort of filling in the gaps and that you know calling it pornography is basically saying it's cheap it's it's lazy it's uncreative it's kind of it's titillating in that sort of in that it kind of you know hits some kind of uh base uh quite sort of surface level need in a sense but it's not doing anything deeper and i would say when i think about the idea of fan service for me things like you know going to the mirror universe uh bringing in section 31 it's these kind of things that to me seem a little bit cheap seem a bit kind of cheesy that it does seem that that has that kind of element of it to it and and again some of my reservations about both the kelvin films and discovery would sort of tie into that and particularly i mean this could be a whole other discussion about what happens with section 31 and and so on to me there's there's kind of a link between that and what braga would call continuity pornography but the other thing that occurred to me, you, you know, when you were speaking, this idea of fans being unhappy and kind of complaining is maybe we're thinking of it in terms of service that you get in a restaurant. <laughs> you know, do you know what I mean? The kind of service <laughs> yeah. that like, yeah, the service wasn't good enough. I'm giving it a one star review. Uh, you know, the, the waiter didn't, didn't do exactly what I wanted. The chef didn't cook my food how I was expecting. Um, there's that other sort of meaning almost in that word you know that we expect to be served in a certain way and that kind of again is problematic because like you say art or or you know tv or film or whatever is not a service industry in that sense you know it's not i mean it is ultimately obviously you produce something and you hope people like it you know you hope you have readers or viewers or whatever it is and that they respond well to it but it's not the same as someone comes into your restaurant for dinner. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's a different, it's a different model. And I think creative people, and actually, you know, I mean, I was praising the, you know, the actors on Discovery. I also think the writers of Discovery are very talented. I think often, certainly when I went back and rewatched season one, my feeling was that individually, I thought there were lots of really beautifully written scenes. I thought there were lots of wonderful writing going on. It's, it's just the kind of the bigger picture stuff for me that doesn't work with that show really it's the kind of big decisions it's the decisions that take place you know we saw in the ds9 documentary the kind of famous writers room of ds9 and the creativity that goes on in there it's the kind of um you know there's that scene weirdly uh in season two of discovery where they're they're having the kind of conference discussion sort of a la next gen and pike says there's no bad ideas and then giorgio says how about we you know nuke a whole planet or whatever <laughs> uh, and everyone sort of stares at her and she says what i thought there were no bad ideas um it's it almost that to me is is almost the discovery writers room it's like that yeah sometimes there are bad ideas you you know and you need to um exercise kind of judgment around them just because something seems like it like it sounds really exciting and it sounds like it would would be great and everyone will get really excited about it you you need that kind of um part of your brain that's thinking well but hang on you know hang on is it does it really make sense uh, and i know a lot of people have uh, have struggled with all the kind of business about the red angel and who's the red angel when and now there are two of them and which one is doing which and you know does literally on a logical level does that story and i have no idea because i haven't gone back and rewatched it and i you know chris jones uh the publisher of track of m has watched it six times and i don't think he's even 100 percent certain 
whether it makes logical sense or not. But the fact is, it certainly doesn't make logical sense on a level that you can appreciate on first viewing and that, that ties up in any kind of easy way. And I, and I do just think, I don't know, that, 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 that to me is kind of where the problem comes in. It's, it's the kind of, it's the ideas that get stuck up on the board and that maybe they were the wrong ideas to begin with. And then everything that follows, great scenes, but you, you know, great, genuinely great, talented writers, uh, brilliant directors, all the production values in the world, gorgeous to look at, wonderful actors doing a brilliant job. But it's, it's the decisions that were taken, you know, right back at the start that are the kind of problematic ones here. And it's, and I suppose the difference is, you know, these anniversary shows or whatever. Okay. Maybe Iris Stephen Bear hit a home run. Brandon Braga slightly fumbled it a couple of times. It doesn't really matter that much. I mean, these are the voyages. Maybe it matters more because it's the last episode. And I think that's why it really annoyed a lot of people. But if that had just been an episode in a season of Enterprise, yeah. it would just be like, yeah, that was just a crap episode. You know, yeah, yeah, so yeah, there, there yeah. are pr- plenty of crap episodes exactly. in Star Trek that, you, you know, yeah. uh, I mean, even something like Threshold, you, you know, again, mm. a bold idea. Mm. Awfully full executed. Of terrible. <laughs> but yeah, but no, actually, I mean, maybe also an awful idea. I, I don't know, but certainly a, an unusual idea. You know, it didn't work, but, you know, so what? That's fine. But I suppose the danger is if it's, if it's a whole season of a show is, is so heavily tied into all this, then it kind of, you start, it, it does start to take over. So it's like control, you know, infecting and, and kind of um, absorbing and, and gradually spreading its kind of tendrils through the rest of the story somehow. This, this is, this is, and this is where you've got to ask yourself, at what point does a project become about the service? At what point do you switch from being, um, try, telling stories that are pushing some boundaries, even if they fail, and and you move into wanting to do something because you know the fans will like it, you know. And and I think I think that's exactly what happened with Discovery, you know. I think that I think that was what essentially what these are the voyages was about because it means you get to see Riker and Troy again, and you're on the Enterprise D, you know, and you can frame the Enterprise characters through the prism of people you know, you're comfortable with, who you're excited to see again, even if it's, you know, in this strange season seven context, even though they look visibly 10 years older and it's really odd. But, you know, and, and you know, even even things like having Deanna Troy on, on um, Voyager and having like a whole episodes with Reg Barkley, you know, set in, in back on Earth with, with Deanna Troy doing counselling with him and things like that. You know, it's that kind of thing where you're, you, you know, you're you're trying to, you tap, tap into in, into into if not nostalgia then safety you know into areas and you know i i had discussion with um it was brought up on the other podcast but i had a discussion on on uh, the babel conference with someone about wharf coming onto deep space nine and whether that was the analogous to what they did with spock in season two of discovery and i don't think it is because i think one of the key things with wharf coming into ds9 in season four was that Yes, okay, it was to get war fans and, and next generation fans in. Of course it was. On a, on, a, on a basic pure level, yes, it was. You know, but equally, what Worf didn't become Deep Space Nine. You know, he didn't it, Deep Space Nine didn't then wrap itself around Worf and become the Worf show. You know, Worf integrated into that show and he became part of the tapestry of that and arguably became a, a fantastic character because of DS9, not really so much because of TNG. 
Deep Space Nine was the making of him, really. You know, so you've got to look at it. And the difference with Spock is that, you know, you talk about the origin story of Spock because that's what it is. And that this is what fans have come to expect now from fiction. They've come to expect the origin story. You know, you've seen it in all the Marvel films. You've seen it in, you know, I mean, Zach and, uh, 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 compared it, I think, very accurately, the Spock shaving the beard thing to the end of Casino Royale with the Bond, James Bond. The moment he becomes Bond at the end of that film. You know, it's a similar sort of beat they try and play with Spock in that he becomes Spock, even though he's already Spock. He was already you know, Spock. We saw the cage. And right. Exactly. Disco only makes sense if you, I don't mean it only makes sense, but like it plays massively on the fact that we've seen the cage and that we know that there was Spock in the cage. It's like, right. So, so, so it's not an origin story in that sense. No, but, I mean, but it's, they, it's kind of, they're trying to make, well, yeah, but they're trying, they're trying to make it into, into the, the model of an origin story. They're trying to make it the, the moment Spock becomes Spock. You know, and it, it's, it, it, it is cheap, as you say. It's cheap service because it's trying to, it's trying to con you almost into watching Discovery in order to have that beat of Spock. Like in the same way, you know, it's trying to fill the gaps of Pike's story. So, you know, we can see the, 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 the track from the cage all the way through to the menagerie, even though we don't, because we don't actually see what, what, happens to pike and i think we'll get a captain pike series where we do eventually anyway you know but it feels like it's it's all filling in those gaps and you know you have to you have to think well where does this kind of thing end you know and this is what they've got to be careful with with the the picard show i suspect it won't be quite as nakedly cynical as as discovery season two but they've got to be careful they don't make it a big hagiography for for picard and make it all about you know how much of an amazing character he is and and you know they've, they've got to be they've got to really do it they've got to do something different and i think because it is that again he's fan service you know picard's back wow and we're all excited for this we, we are of course we are of course we are it's patrick stewart it's john luke picard who arguably didn't really have an ending to his story and it's really exciting it's quite thrilling as a fan to think we might see you know, not just the late 24th century, but we might see Picard. So these are really exciting things. Well, at the end of Picard's story, I should say, or a new chapter of his life. But it's, these are very fan service kind of things. It's not, it's very different. It's not like they've decided to set a, a new Star Trek series in, say, the 27th century with an entirely new crew, an entirely new dynamic. They're not doing things like that. They're trying to cheat and do that in Discovery in a way. But they, they are, they are intentionally doing projects that are, connecting to trek you are safe comfortable with and you know you're going to be excited about and it's a ploy that you're seeing across fiction you're seeing it everywhere you're seeing it in all these big old ips you're seeing it with star wars in how you know that whole new trilogy has been all about tapping into the 1970s and 80s old movies you're seeing it in james bond which is bringing back blofeld and all these you know these old villains you know the the rami malek as maybe dr no and all these hints that are going around about the new film you're seeing it in all of these ips you know and that's and that is exactly what star trek has been doing and i it's a cross fandom thing because they're worried that if you do something new then your fandom are going to be angry your fandom are going to are going to either react or they're going to say this is not what we want this is not and and they're worried that people will start watching and it's in a way the creators have become at the mercy of fans and that's really scary, you know. It's it's it's, and it's not how great art gets made. It's not how we we ended up with the inner light. It's not how we ended up within the pale moonlight, you know. It's not how we ended up with you know great episodes of of uh, you know, a mock time and all these kind. Of, it, it's not how we got to this. So if we want this, and, and and this is my opinion, and it's 
a lot of people disagree, but we have not had one episode of Discovery which even comes close to those episodes I've just mentioned, not even in the same galaxy. And if we want that with this new Star Trek era, then they've got to stop servicing fans in the way they have been. And and and, and hopefully that, that needs to ripple across fandom in general, in everything. Because otherwise, we're not going to have anything to look back on one day. And the interesting thing is, I suppose, when Next Gen debuted in the 80s, there was... This was up in the air to some extent. And there was this kind of question mark about like, what's the relationship between Next Gen and the original series? And how much can we kind of lean on nostalgia for TOS and those characters and so on? And obviously we did have McCoy briefly in the pilot and so on. And we did have those other characters further down the line. But, you know, in those first few years of Next Gen, I remember there was um, reading about, and this was, I think, Ira Stephen Bear who was talking about because he was working on Next Gen at the time when they were doing the episode Sarek. And there was this big row basically about whether they could use the word Spock in the episode Sarek, which is about, you know, is about a character from the original series and is about his father. But at the same time, that was for next gen, that was their way of like dipping their toe into the kind of continuity and into the kind of, um, you know, for want of a better word, fan service or whatever. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't think of the episode Sarek as a fan service episode. And that's partly because it's so dramatic and beautiful and heartbreaking and, and, you know, really valid, interesting, piece of work in its own right. And I think that that's maybe part of it. I mean, another episode that I was thinking of in DS9 is Blood Oath. Now, when I first watched DS9 and first watched Blood Oath, I hadn't seen much. I mean, I'd seen a few episodes of the original series, but I was, I was not that familiar with the original series at all. I didn't realise those Klingons had come from the original series. That completely went over my head. But I loved that episode. I thought it was great. I thought they were three fantastic characters, you know, really great actors, really interesting story. And I love that story. And it's only later that I realised that that was a kind of, again, one of these kind of little gifts to the fans or whatever. And DS9, I suppose, was the series that sort of lent into TOS a little bit more because the writers on that show, you know, compared to Next Gen, where it was often these quite new, you know, sort of new kind of professional writers who were kind of this was their job and they were in the next gen universe and it was all about next gen. I think that the DS9 writers did have more of this kind of nostalgia and affection for TOS and so on. And they did bring that in, in various kind of generally quite sort of small and subtle ways. But Blood Oath, I think, again, is a good example of a story that works very much on its own terms. It works as a piece of drama. It doesn't really matter whether you know all that stuff. I mean, Trials and Tribulations is different because it is obviously very much the whole thing is is about that love for the original series and is about that kind of nostalgia and about all that stuff. But again, it sort of does something with it, I suppose. And I guess it's interesting, you know, talking about those, you know, Trials and Tribulations and obviously Flashback we mentioned as well with these 30th anniversary things. I mean, we've also seen these kind of 50th anniversary uh, things. There aren't many properties that get to 50 years and there usually is some attempt to do that. So, I mean... I was talking about Doctor Who, uh, you know, the 50th, we had that episode where you got Matt Smith and David Tennant together, but you also got a cameo by Tom Baker. You also got all this other stuff that, uh, you know, even me as a not particularly a huge Doctor Who fan could recognise that was written by someone who, as we know, I mean, I, you know, I know without even knowing much about Doctor Who was a Doctor Who fan and wrote like fan fiction and stuff as a, a younger person and so on. And you could see the the little references and the little kind of, gestures and things were all in that there is this kind of way of doing a kind of anniversary show which is not like trials and tribulations where they literally kind of the whole story is about that original thing but it's like you do your own story but at the same time it it's it's 
it's like an Easter egg hunt. It's not just you get one or two Easter eggs. It's like Easter egg, Easter egg, Easter egg. And you got that, I suppose, with Skyfall to some extent, which was the 50th anniversary Bond, I think, wasn't it? And you had all these little kind of um, references one way or another. And you got that to some extent, I think, with Beyond. I mean, maybe not to quite the same extent. And all the JJ films, you know, have little references. You know, 2009 has the reference to uh, Archer's Beagle and, and so on. But um, Beyond, it was... That it was sort of peppering it a little bit more of that kind of stuff, and it, I didn't mind that. I sort of thought it it worked fine, and it was a fiftieth anniversary. And we sort of know there's a kind of slightly, slightly cheeky, slightly cheesy sort of aspect to that, but it's quite sweet and good natured. But again, that was written by Simon Pegg, who genuinely loved Star Trek, and you, you know, the, this was not a sort of cynical attempt. Like, I don't think let's drop in as many of these Easter eggs as possible, and you, you know, because that's what the fans will love. It was it was a little bit more. It, that must have been a conscious decision, but it was also a little bit more genuine than that. And some of them, you, you know, that moment where the picture of the original series crew comes out, you know, brings a lump to everyone's throat. I mean, that that is kind of, um, or for me anyway, that was a very moving moment. And it shows that it is possible to hit those beats and do them in such a way that that really celebrates uh, fandom and celebrates the love that people can have for the property that they are a fan of and i think this was true with the with the doctor who 50th as well you know not speaking as a long-term huge doctor who fan or whatever though i've you know i've watched a fair bit of doctor who over the years sort of you know kind of in passing but that kind of genuine heartfelt kind of touching recognition that is kind of that it is a genuine bridge between the creators and the fans and a genuine link and saying, you know, yeah, this means something to us too, or this means something, you know, we sort of we get the value of this in some way. But I think it doesn't always land like that. And, you know, some sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But it ultimately, I do think a lot of it comes down to who's who's the one making those gestures and are they genuine or not? And and who knows? I mean, maybe it's possible to be really cynical and really fake this stuff. But what it feels like to me is that sometimes I just don't buy it. I don't believe that the sentiment is genuine. I feel like it's a bit kind of cheap. And and I, I have no idea. I mean, I don't know whether Alex Kurtzman genuinely loves Section 31 and has this kind of like... um devoted interest in those episodes of ds9 maybe he does but like i love ds9 uh i think you you know as i said ds9 seems to be the show that could do all this the best because i think they had such kind of integrity in that writer's room and such creativity and so on i've never felt that section 31 is an element of star trek lore that means something to me in that way that like I, i perk up at the very thought of it but you know maybe i'm wrong maybe maybe for other people, they're like, wow, Section 31, that's the best thing about Star Trek. Or the Mirror Universe. Same for me, to be honest. I've enjoyed many of the Mirror Universe episodes. To me, the Mirror Universe is not really what screams Star Trek. The Mirror Universe is what screams kind of pulpy, uh, Star Trek's gone a bit oddball this week. Uh, this is kind of... And the same with Section 31. It's the kind of... They're not really in the kind of sweet zone of what star trek represents to me they're they're kind of slightly they're the comic booky side they're the sort of slightly kind of whatever and so i suppose partly for me that's what it often feels like it feels a bit like i don't know again it's a bit like giorgio flashing that badge and and you know that's supposed to sort of mean something that's supposed to sort of impress pike it's that kind of like hey 
this is going to impress you. I don't know. I'm sure a lot of people think that. And, you know, there, there is there is genuinely some element of, uh, actually, and I was having this discussion recently, that maybe this isn't our trek anymore, you know? And th- this is this is something that happens to a lot of a lot of people, a lot of different fandoms, you know, it, it fan, th- these properties have to move on, you know, and Star Trek has moved on. And I think there are, don't get me wrong. I mean, the Babel conference is full of long-term legacy Star Trek fans who adore discovery. So I'm really, I'm really not suggesting that it's just newbies who love this, but I think there is sometimes for some of us, that point where we have to sort of remember that this maybe isn't being made for us, and this again just goes back to the fan service thing. But I, th- I think the difference with the, the difference between the two first, the two seasons of Discovery is that you know the, the 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 elements of Discovery in season one that were tapping into elements and plugging gaps, like the Mirror Universe, you know, and like like the the Klingon Federation War, they were reflecting to some extent some of the allegorical stuff of the day. You know, the um, Klingon Federation War was you know in many ways a reflection of ISIS, you know, and, and fundamentalist terrorism. You know, under the under the guise of of trying to create a, a an empire around it, and then you've got uh, you know the mirror universe, which is very much you know. I mean, this this is coming out in at the end of twenty seventeen, um, start of twenty eighteen at the you know for after the first year of the Trump administration. It's very clearly a, a, a play on totalitarianism and you know the darkening impulses of of our of our world, you know, and the fear that we might be ed- edging more towards the Terran empire than the Federation. And, it, you know, there is that element to it, even though it's very pulpy and B movie and shooty shooty and you know, all that. But then season two of discovery, I don't really think there's anything there except the, um, there's no depth. It's just surface. You know, I don't really see from that, from that story and from that arc, anything more than histrionics and pure, let's recreate the original series here for and and and, the, and the, that's that's my diff that's the difference i think that's the fundamental difference between all these examples you know between the anniversary winks and nods and like you say the the the, the truly moving connections that that are there and and that creators can do to something that is purely designed to you know give you what you want to give you the give you the confection to make you go oh wow it's spock oh you know like i said at the beginning and, and it's that it's that reaction that i think it's it really suckers you it really sucks you in and like i said i had it with i had it when i saw the enterprise i had it and it, it could have well have done the same with me but I, I i i i couldn't i can't lie i can't sit here and do what <laughs> some of these maybe these actors and these writers are are afraid not to do. I can't sit here and tell you honestly that I think this is good Star Trek because I don't. And and this this is the reality. And I think I think you've got to be honest about that. And you've got to. And I think and that's my opinion. And it's and there are many many people who disagree. But I think that the problem we've got now is that we 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 there are too many lines drawn between the two camps. And I think fan service is great up to a certain point. And I think then you've got to really, it's that whole thing of people don't really know what they want until it's there, you know? And I think the best kind of art, the best kind of writing, the best kind of movies, the best kind of TV gives people what they didn't realize they wanted. And I think if Star Trek starts to do that, then we're going to end up with something really exciting. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, no one thought they wanted next gen 
Everyone thought that no, was exactly. a disaster, including Patrick Stewart, who didn't unpack yeah. his bag. I mean, everyone <laughs> thought that was a cynical <laughs> attempt to like uh, make the original series syndicate because they get some extra episodes or whatever, and it was a completely pointless, uh, creatively pointless show. And it turned out, you know, fortunately, uh, in the end, they they were wrong. But I think it's interesting what you say about this sense of honesty, you know, and, and obviously the actors are in a difficult situation. The actors always have to say what they've been given is mm, wonderful. Of course they do. Maybe they yeah. believe that. Maybe they got some good scenes. Maybe it seems quite dramatic. It is dramatic. They do play the kind of, you know, they get stuff to do, if you know what I mean. So creatively, maybe it's quite fulfilling. But they can't really be going out like Gillian. I mean, Gillian Anson can because she's got other things going on and it was the last episode anyway. And she can, you know, she clearly felt pretty pissed off about it and she wanted to, and, and I would say justifiably, uh, personally, but let's, you know, let's not get into a whole discussion about the X-Files. But I mean, I, I can see why she would do that and she's in a position to do that, that I think the Discovery cast are not. I do think it's important though, what you say about, you know, being honest and saying, look, this doesn't work for me or whatever, and being prepared to say that. Because I guess, again, when we're talking about, you know, we were talking about the writer's room and the places that these decisions are being made. And I made that reference to Giorgio saying, well, I thought there were no bad ideas. You know, someone does need to be the one to put their hand up and say, actually, this thing doesn't make sense. Or actually, this thing is maybe not such a great idea when you think about it, as it seems on the surface. And I think that that is something that is difficult and is partly to do with the culture of a particular writer's room. And, you know, maybe the DS, I mean, you know, we do tend to really, uh, sort of idealize this DS9 writer's room as having all these very talented, very brilliant people. And they've all gone on to do brilliant work as well and so on. But I do think that that is a part of it is being willing to hear those kind of reservations and objections and so on. And I mean, my sort of dealings in the world TV are very limited, but I have had to a small extent, you know, one of the books I wrote was option for TV and went a certain way down the line. And we had these kind of meetings where writers were kind of uh, suggesting things and so on. And it did feel to me, even in that situation, there was a certain, sometimes there's a kind of sense that like, particularly if you've got like a sort of star writer or a sort of um, a writer who's really respected, no one will dare to put their hand up and say, actually, this just doesn't make sense. Or actually, there's a really serious problem with that. And that's what you need. You know, you really need the script editor and you really need a good script editor to put their hand up and say, yeah, sorry, that bit doesn't work. uh, And that's why. Or, you know, someone in the room who's willing to do that and who's willing to challenge it. And I do wonder whether partly, and this is complete guesswork on my part, but, you know, with the new Star Trek that we've got with Alex Kurtzman, and I don't want to blame it all on him necessarily, but I think in some ways there is a danger that he is like a star writer if you know what i mean and a star kind of creative and he's come from the movies and he's made you know probably billions of dollars for various studios and so on and he's the kind of person who i imagine if he says he wants to do something no one is going to dare to say uh we don't think that's such a great idea and i do think you can see it sometimes in tv shows even when you've got a really talented or really interesting writer uh sometimes it you know it all falls apart at the end or so there's, there's something that goes wrong and you just think if the audience is all watching it saying, what the hell happened there? Or there's some massive logical f- flaw in this, or there's some huge, you know, problem that hasn't been spotted. Why was there not someone in the room saying that at the time? Do you know what I mean? And I do think that that is the kind of, um, that is the sort of the, the worry there. And the reason that a lot of this, you know, when people talk about lazy writing, uh, it's not necessarily that it's lazy. I mean, it probably a lot of effort has gone into that writing. It's not that they've just written it in five minutes or whatever. It's just that there's been some mistake that crept in quite early that no one has bothered to 
or no, no one has managed to sort of question. I mean, that sort of goes beyond the thing about fan service is, is, is more to do with the kind of whole writing culture generally. But I feel there's a kind of link there, maybe. The other thing I just wanted to ask you about, because I'm just curious, since we haven't really talked about it, what are your feelings? Because we talked about um, seeing the Enterprise at the end of season one of Discovery and then going into season two. What are your feelings on the two-part mirror uh, storyline in Enterprise in A Mirror Darkly because I know a lot of fans love that episode and they loved seeing the old sets again and they loved all that nostalgia and all that stuff around it and they loved seeing the Mirror Universe and everyone loves the Mirror Universe and I have to say I've always hated those episodes and I don't know whether that's just because like I take Star Trek far too seriously or like I just don't know how to have a good time or whatever it is but I sort of feel like um to me I was just like I didn't want this do you know what I mean I was I was kind of starting to like this show a bit more and this did not make me again it's just like this is not why I, 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 now i sound like the terrible fan saying this is not what i ordered but um <laughs> i suppose it's it but what it is the analogy there is almost being like brought uh like a special cake or something and being told that you ordered it <laughs> when you didn't do you know what i mean and it's it's like you know I, I i never said i wanted this you know that was my feeling but but again i know you know even more so than with disco most people that i know love those episodes i think and see them as a highlight of enterprise um and i find that strange because i feel like they're they're the least star trek they're the least kind of enterprisey in a way they're kind of to me they're just a collection of gimmicks but maybe people love the gimmicks or but i i think i think they do i think they do love the gimmicks and i think i think i think that's increasingly proven across fiction as a whole really i think i think in a mirror darkly i i I, if i've seen it twice i'd be you know that's it you know over the years but yeah i can't and to be honest it's been so long i can't really remember a lot of the nuts and bolts of it but obviously it had the original enterprise bridge even though it was you know the defiant in that in that situation but it has the repurposed enterprise bridge you know and it's it's them trying in some respects to both to both do the original series sort of mirror episodes and play off the fact that Deep Space Nine did them and, you know, and, and it's, it's in its own way, again, it's quite cynical, you know, it's actually trying to recapture some past glories, you know, and that, that fourth season of Enterprise was all f- full of either plugging gaps or recapturing some past glories or trying to, you know, give people answers to questions in the, in the, in the lore of Star Trek that, uh, you know that existed and I think that's where you can go that's where you go wrong with this you know that is where you know it, fans th- this is one of the reasons fan fiction exists and this is one of the reasons why you know fans have the license you know not not actual um, license to write them if you see what I mean in that sense but they have the, the liberty shall I say to write for fan, fr- fan fiction and you know do their own versions of these stories because it, that's fine and that's great. And that's, you know, if you want to tell that story and you want to write that story and you want to put it on a website, then wonderful. And people may well enjoy it. But it's that whole difference of, you know, at what at what point is that meant for the masses? At what point does that, should that become what the show is or what the idea is or what the film is? And and I think, you know, something like In a Mirror Darkly was almost the forerunner to what we what we got with some of Discovery, it felt like it was Star Trek already trying to eat itself by that point, you know. And again, it goes back to that whole thing of how Enterprise ended up, even though yeah, it had its moments, it ended up being a very discordant show, which did never really figured out what it wanted to be completely, and then was abruptly, you know, cancelled. And I, I, 
I don't think necessarily Discovery will go down exactly the same path, but I think I don't think it will. I don't think there'll be seven seasons of Discovery. I really don't, and I think a lot will hinge on how successful this next season is and how successful this potential. You know, I mean, because it is essentially going to be a reboot in many ways. It's 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 pushing the reboot button on much of the storyline, taking the characters that are left, and you can do anything. You know, that they literally could do anything now, and that that is that is really exciting. But it's whether or not Discovery goes down the path of becoming DS9 or the next generation where they really find their feet in season three, or it becomes Enterprise and has a interesting, quite you know, successful creatively third season, but it's too late. You know, and 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 I think a lot will depend on what fans think of that. And fan, like you said, I think they change course based heavily on a lot of people who were unsatisfied with with this and, and were saying, well, you know, give us something new. Give us new worlds, new, give, get them exploring, get them out there. So I think fans have a lot of power now. And, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And I don't think fans always have the responsibility, Duncan, to be honest, which is what worries me. Well, that is a good point. I mean, I, I would say I don't feel as uh worried for discovery as a show I, I think maybe as you do because all the evidence seems to be people are watching it and people are enjoying it and it seems to be do you know what i mean it seems to be performing well mm. so i suspect mm. oh, i mean yeah. that you, we may see a massive drop off it may be that you know they jump to the future and they they lose that nostalgia thing and people start saying what's this show about and the fact is we don't really know what it's going to be about i suppose the one thing it won't be about is plugging gaps is doing that thing that, that you're talking about and and i think it's interesting when you, when you think about season four of enterprise you're right season four of enterprise is is arguably like a season of uh i see what you mean by calling it fan fiction i mean what i'd say is that i can see why people love that season though and i don't think it is just because of that because i think there's a lot of good writing in that season there's a lot of good stuff in there i suppose the thing about plugging gaps is it's in on one level it's always unnecessary like it's it's dramatically unnecessary because uh the gap was never a big problem in the first place so you can do it in a way where it feels perfunctory and pointless or you can do it in a way where you do something interesting creatively with it i mean arguably the vulcan storyline in season four of enterprise was again a sort of course correction it was a way of kind of saying so we've written these vulcans they're kind of assholes in this show uh in all the other star trek shows they seemed quite yeah they were a bit annoying now and then but they, they weren't like this and then saying okay we have to sort of explain that so we'll find a way of explaining that and there's this reformation that goes on and now they're going to become a bit more like the ones that we knew so we've kind of almost sort of um a bit like we see with Discovery, kind of backpedalling and kind of uh, and finding a way to like, okay, this is what happened to the spore drive, or this is what happened to this thing, or this is why this you know thing doesn't quite uh, match up to from the beginning. Now the Klingons do have hair; they just shaved their heads because they were at war. All this sort of thing. But I would say those episodes work dramatically. They're quite good episodes. I, I think there are lots of good stories in the fourth season that work on their own terms, even though they are also kind of plugging those gaps. But I think the the danger is that when it becomes just about the plugging gaps or when that sort of takes over the story, it becomes a problem. And, and you know, just again, comparing say enterprise and DS nine, if you think about the whole issue about the Klingon foreheads, obviously discovery is like really complicated this massively. Uh, the way that DS nine handled that was with a kind of 
a, a joke, a kind of meta joke in a sense, just Worf saying, oh, we don't talk about that, basically. Uh, and kind of a- acknowledging that there's a continuity issue because this is a franchise that at that point was 30 years old and things change. Um, but in a way that does sort of make sense. I mean, that's sort of my, you know, sort of make on the, on a basic level, it makes sense within universe. It's clear that it's a kind of meta joke on one level anyway. We have a laugh. We move on. It's not a big deal. We can cope with the fact that there's, there's this difference. Enterprise takes it really literally and feels like it has to explain in some scientific, genetic, uh, way this seemingly, you, you know, ridiculous, giving a sort of ridiculously complicated answer to a very simple question that actually everyone knows the real answer to anyway and i just think it's kind of interesting so so you know that's the approach of, of very much like plugging the gap tying up all the loose ends filling it making it all fit together making it sort of make rational sense but it doesn't make kind of creative sense or it doesn't make kind of um storytelling sense or or any kind of it, it's all just about the kind of rational thing and i suppose the other thing that strikes me about trials and tribulations and one reason that's such a great episode is actually it's not just about plugging gaps that episode doesn't really in a sense, it doesn't plug gaps in the trouble with Tribbles. What it does is it quite cleverly layers a whole extra story on top of the story that we're already familiar with, to the extent that, you know, you have that great thing where there's, you know, there's Cisco and Dax searching for the bomb up above Kirk's head in that scene where we, we know what's going on down below, but we kind of imagined... And I suppose in some ways that is kind of fan fiction, that is sort of imagining what's going on down the corridor or kind of... um or or you know, on the other side of the door or whatever. But it kind of, I mean, it's a pretty flimsy story. It's a silly story. But at the same time, to me, it's quite, it it doesn't feel quite so cheap somehow. Like it, it it's layering this extra story in there that doesn't take anything away from the original story and doesn't, in, in itself, is like a perfectly inoffensive story. Do you know what else did that recently? Avengers Endgame, which, have you seen it? I haven't, no. But to be honest, haven't. I haven't seen uh, an Avengers film since the, first uh, ah well so, okay well <laughs> spoilers I've seen, I've seen in case you have them I've, I've seen doctor strange and i've seen ant-man i think and that might be about okay it since then well spoilers can... in case All right. you haven't so well it's not massively a spoiler but it, spoilers in case you haven't seen it anyone but in that in part of the, the 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 plot of that is that the uh the character some of the characters go back in time to various different things, and one of the one of the air, one of the things they go back into is the first Avengers movie. So they are they are doing exactly what is in Trials and Tribulations, and that they are they're they're having to do something in the modern day, but they're interacting without the the, the their past versions of themselves. Some of them knowing, it, and 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 it, it, it to some extent it creates a new timeline off it in a way. It's it's a bit different, but ultimately there is there are moments where you're seeing moments from avengers 2012 and the characters from 2019 are there watching that happen so there is but and again it fits that whole film is very much similar kind of thing in terms of fan service but without it feeling too cheap we're actually making it work for the story you know and i think and i won't go into any more of that just for people who haven't seen it but it, it is something that i think you can do really well um, but you've got to have a very you've got to have a solid base to found to found that on you know you've got to have something that is either flippant or something that works. You know, Endgame has its problems in terms of plotting in some extent, but in terms of the the essence behind it and the meaning, there's quite a lot of goodwill in that, you know, and it is the end of a story looking back. And I think, you know, gimmicks and little things like that can work, but there's got to be a solid reason for it. 
you know weirdly it kind of reminds me of uh, way back uh darren mooney and i recorded an episode about nostalgia in voyager and the, the extent to which voyager is always like jumping back to previous episodes and kind of recreating those early seasons you know late, later on down voyager's run you know you've got shows like uh the one where seven and nine is jumping through different time periods you've you've got um the one where chakotay is kind of going back through different time periods and so on um it also reminds me of Back to the Future 2. I mean, everyone thinks of Back to the Future 2 as the film that's set in the future, but actually uh, a fair chunk of Back to the Future 2 is set in Back to the Future 1, isn't it? I think they go back They go back to that. I think so. Know, to the 1950s. Yeah. And he's literally going, sort of going back into it again and going, you know, this sort of other level of like go, almost going back into the first film again. And obviously that is a way of, um, yeah, there is a kind of fan service-y element of that potentially because it is i think certainly with it, it plays up very much on this kind of nostalgic um thing uh, and certainly voyager i think the the further they got along with that series you know into their kind of seven seasons the more nostalgic they got for kind of almost the show that they were not anymore do you know what i mean and uh, and that you see this kind of desire to keep going back and keep you know looking back at the at the kind of early years of that show um I don't know whether that's so much about the fans, though. I always felt like that seemed to be some kind of compulsion on the part of the writers to go back there. I don't think it was, and maybe I'm wrong, but it it never feels to me like they're saying, oh, the fans love to see Janeway with her bun of steel and they'll get such a thrill out of it. And, you you know, going, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that is what it was about. And it was just as kind of um, calculated in a way. But it, it sort of feels like with Voyager, it's almost this kind of compulsion on the writer's part to just keep going keep going backwards all the time that they're supposed to be going, you know, forwards to the Alpha Quadrant. You know, with Discovery, we've, we have got this interesting opportunity now to see what does this show take forward and how does it... Because it's going to be such a strong... Uh, the, the weird thing is if they jumped at the end of the first season, it would have been one thing. But it's 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 having had that second season in between that, that is going to be... I, I suppose when we look back on it, I mean, like I say, I don't think Discovery's... I don't see Discovery getting cancelled suddenly, you know, in its prime. I think they may well have a plan for like three or four years or something, and that's that's what it's going to be. But I, as I say, it seems to be pretty popular and doing pretty well. So I don't worry that they're going to just be sort of um, meet an untimely end necessarily. But I do wonder when we look back on it, and I said this a while ago when I was doing this panel in Guernsey, we were talking quite a lot about Discovery, and I was sort of saying, I feel like I don't yet know what the show is that it's trying to become. And maybe at some point, at some point we're going to, when we, when Discovery's over and we can see the whole thing, assuming that it has developed a clear identity of some kind, we'll be able to look back and say, okay, these were the steps along the way. And now we, we sort of see where it was going. I wonder, is season two going to be the aberration? And we just could think, wow, that was a weird experiment. And that was a kind of, um, you know, this sort of nostalgia fest that, that almost came out of, not came out of nowhere because you're right it's baked into the premise but that that was kind of atypical or or is each season i mean you know every season of discovery has they have a new captain is he, is every season going to be basically a different show are we almost we're not getting the anthology insofar as we, an anthology of where that like time and place and so on maybe we're getting an anthology of tone almost where maybe um, each season is just like it is almost like it's been created by a different person, you know. A bit like sometimes with a franchise, uh, with franchise films, you get a different director coming in each time and kind of shaking things up and making it feel, you know, not feeling like the same thing continuing, but actually feeling like okay, this is a different take on this story. Who knows? Time will tell. 
one day, you know, Star Trek 20, 30, 50 years down the line will be nostalgically harking back to Discovery and, and you know, reimagining themselves in the middle of um, Captain Pike's tenure of the of the Discovery. People will be, you know, future so. Starfleet crews will be sending themselves back there. Who knows? I do hope so. I do hope so. And, I, you know, I hope we enter a, you know, a new phase for this and you know i i, I really do i'm re- i really i sound like i am really down on it all and that i'm you know i'm very curmudgeonly and miserable about it and you know I, and that i'm i'm not i'm not even trying to denigrate fan fiction you know i've written fan fiction i enjoy it you know it, it's it, and, I, and and there are things about discovery that i do like but i just think that a lot of it is being driven buy fan service for the wrong reasons and i think if they can get away from that and i think if 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 we can get away from that as a fandom then i think we'll end up with something so much richer and then i can stop being miserable about it <laughs> from my own personal perspective i'll sound like well, a broken record if nothing else that's something to look forward to um well yeah that's a hopeful <laughs> optimistic note to end on I yes think. um before we go tony do you want to tell our listeners uh where they can track you down online if they want to get in touch and, and tell you why you're wrong uh or read some of your, your more lengthy uh musings on these subjects and, and take a look at your blog and so on what's the best way for them to find you well yeah um if, if you want if you want if you want to be more depressed by me follow me on uh twitter at aj black writer my website is uh, com where I'm writing about Star Trek and um, very, very sort of different things um, in pop culture. But uh, but yeah, that that's that's where I am. And you know, there is some Discovery stuff on there. But if you go into it with an open mind, it's not all it's not all having a go at Discovery. Now, I do write positive Star Trek stuff as well <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> Well, it's been fun talking about uh, fan service, the good, the bad, the ugly uh, this week. But um, that's not all we've been doing on Trek FM. So have a listen to what else you might have missed out on elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, The Orb. I'm not sure that our mindset has necessarily changed drastically from 1993 to 2019. Perhaps it has. I think it has a bit. But the tendency for this kind of thing to happen may have been there then, but the difference is that today we have these platforms like Twitter and Facebook that amplify it, and it is much easier for people to get together into these groups and push a certain agenda or attack an individual. Melodic treks. But I, I did actually look look back to a lot of the older stuff like the the Jerry Goldsmith scores and even like the James Horner scores I thought those the orchestration style like I thought was really really cool to me kind of had this more classical like using only the orchestra but creating these spooky textures and stuff I, I always really love that that kind of sound literary treks <laughs> and all of a sudden we see a panel that shows where Kirk and Chris are i want to call her crispy for a second <laughs> there's uh spock and crisp i think right okay that uh yeah spock and crisp i love that cereal <laughs> and <laughs> i had some kellogg spock and crisp the other day warp five to, to yeah you don't give them the tools they need moving forward it's great to give someone their freedom but you have to then stay there and help them to get to the next step so that they don't need you anymore to do that 
That was the problem with the episode. And I think that plays a big role in not just this episode, but society in general. We've done that a lot in other countries, and we've gone and knocked out regimes and, you know, whatever. And then we don't do anything for the people there. So we're back in the same boat or a worse boat than we were when we started. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation on the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Primitive Culture is brought to you by Duncan Barrett and Clara Cook. You can find Duncan Barrett on Twitter at Barrett's Books. You can find Clara on Twitter at MC. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons' website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek.fm. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank our associate producers here at Primitive Culture, Tony Black and Amy Nelson. Tony was one of the founders of this show, and we still keep him in the loop about what we're doing. You can find him on Twitter at at AJBlackWriter and online, hosting about a dozen other podcasts on everything from the X-Files to classic cinema. Amy is the host of two shows on the Trek FM network, Earl Grey and The Edge, and you can find her online on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. You're blended all right.